Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. Judah, and welcome to our program, Revealing the Book of Revelation. We are in the middle of the book. In fact, we are ready to start looking at chapter 11. And chapter 11 is going to be telling us about a prophecy about two witnesses that are going to come forth during the course of the Great Tribulation. To review just a little bit and connect the last episode with this one, I shared with you in the last episode that the overarching uh, setup of the Great Tribulation, the three and a half years, it's going to begin in a season of winter. It's going to conclude in the season of summer. The abomination of desolation, the altar shutdown is in the winter time. Shortly thereafter is the Passover, and that's when the greater exodus begins. That's when we depart and uh, leave. Um, and the Antichrist is going to be coming to power at that time. And, and then we proceed through the time of the Great Tribulation, and we come to the conclusion, which then we go into the period of the days immediately after the Tribulation. That period of time is in the, the heels of summer spilling into the fall, because the fall feasts are going to be being fulfilled when the Lord returns at the end of the Great Tribulation. The Scripture is very clear. Immediately after the days of the Great Tribulation, we see the sign of the Son of Man. He then comes back. So we have this context of the Great Tribulation. And now we're going to look at the story of the two witnesses because they're going to be in the center of all of that activity. When do they actually start? In other words, when do the two witnesses stand up and begin to do their prophetic work? It's obviously going to be after the Great Tribulation has started, after the altar has shut down, because they stand to either side of the cold altar. And we believe they're going to begin about 30 days after the altar shut down. Why do we say that? Because this prophecy is going to go in and tell us that their prophecy is for 1,260 days. The Great Tribulation, according to Daniel, is 1,290 days, beginning with the abomination of desolation. So we have the abomination of desolation, the shutdown, and then we have 30 days after that, the two witnesses begin to minister, and then they conclude 1,260 days later, which is the same end point as the 1,290 days when the Great Tribulation ends. And it's in the days immediately after the tribulation that they are raised. And we have the end time events of the days after the great tribulation. I know you need an illustration for this. By the way, 
Line of Land Ministries has a whole diagram that lays all of this out. And if you're going to go through details of those detailed time prophecies, you'll need to get it. It's free. You can contact the ministry. It's called the Tribulation Timeline. And it goes through every one of these prophecies that we're talking about. It lays them all out in sequence. You can see how each of the pieces fit into it. So we are at this point at chapter 11. We're going to be hearing about the two witnesses that's in that center time frame. Join with me now uh, at chapter 11. We're still talking about the sixth trumpet. And this is a parenthetical interruption. This is something we need to know uh, that helps us the understanding of the second woe or the, um, the sixth trumpet that's going on. Chapter 11, verse 1, And there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Before we go any further, I want you to understand something that's taking place at the start of the Great Tribulation. The core events that start the Great Tribulation are on the Temple Mount, in the Temple, and it has to do with Temple service. Uh, the altar is the table of God. It is God's ownership symbol of the earth. He has said very clearly that the stones that are in it cannot be hewn by man. They have to be stones made by God so that the testimony is clear. Anything touching those stones of that altar and anything that altar touches belongs to the Lord. Well, the stones make the case of the altar. And the altar setting on the earth, setting on the temple mount, belongs to God. Setting on the earth belongs to God. Everybody's walking around on the earth belongs to God. That's his symbol that says everything belongs to me. In fact, the first words that are spoken every week over the altar and the first words to be spoken when the altar is established comes from Psalms 24, verse 1, which says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's his ownership symbol uh, for the earth. So he's now saying, I want you to measure certain things against that. Measure the temple. And what he's really talking about is the court, the court of the temple. And the measurement that you start with is from the cornerstone. You start at the cornerstone that's set for the temple, and you measure off from that. That's the reference point. Who's the cornerstone of our faith? Yeshua the Messiah. He's the cornerstone, and uh, everything that is connected to the temple is connected to him. So we have to measure that. Then it says measure the altar. Who stands with the altar? Who stands against the altar? Who is for this temple? Who is against this temple? Let me um, tell you, when they measure uh, an altar, they have a, a rod, which is to represent the standard size of a certain number of cubits, because it, that's the main reference they use. But part of measuring the altar is also they make a plumb line. It's a piece of string, and it has a weight at the bottom. And the whole idea is you hold it up, gravity pulls, and you now have straight up and straight down. And so they take that and they measure it up to the edge of the altar to make sure the altar is upright correctly so that it stands true. It's not tilted or whatever. So that's part of measuring. The same thing applies to us. Uh, are we for the altar of God? 
are we opposed to the altar God? In other words, let's take that plumb line and let's measure it up against us. Are we in parallel with the altar? Or are we crosswise? We have a different angle from the altar. And it says it measures the altar and it measures us. How do we stand with regard to the temple being constructed and the altar being set up? In other words, are we in agreement with the cornerstone or are we in agreement with the altar? By the way, the altar is always made operational before the full temple is built. It has to be operating while stones are being laid. The only reason why you need the cornerstone is to know where to put the altar. But once the altar is done, then you start laying other stones. Everything follows thereafter. That's the way temples get built in Jerusalem in the past. That's the way they'll be done in the future. Which means then there's going to be a discussion about preceding the uh, great tribulation for the last generation. There has to be a discussion about an interest in rebuilding the temple. By the way, that is our present generation. The previous generation did not have that, did not have that discussion. Israel did not have any of Jerusalem. They didn't have the Temple Mount. There was no discussion about it. It's only what's happened in this generation. It's another indicator we're in all likelihood the last generation. But then there's the measuring of the altar and the measuring of us. Um, as I've gone around ministry-wise um, and have shared about this subject and shared about how the Torah is still relevant for all believers today, there are people, you know, Christians, leaders, who've stood up and objected to that. And they've taken issue with that. And the idea that the Jews would go and reestablish the altar in fact, they've, I've heard the statement made multiple times. The idea that the Jews would build an altar and begin to do the daily sacrifice, which is the requirement of the start of the Great Tribulation, they think that's the abomination. And they think the shutting down of that altar would be a good thing. If you're looking for something that would qualify as the dumbest thing that you could possibly discern in the faith... You'd be hard-pressed to beat that one. It is very clear the Lord, that is his ownership symbol. That's what it always meant. That's what it will mean again. And if you're a Christian and you're opposed to the altar, you have made the wrong choice. And in fact, this is part of the reason why when the 144,000 you heard about in Revelation chapter 7, and I talked about the angel Gabriel who goes around and seals them, You know, at the start of the Great Tribulation, before any of the trumpet judgments can take place. Uh, That's the reason why it says there's six other angels that go out and judge the remnant. Judgment comes first to the household of faith. Before God judges the nations, he will judge his own house. He will clean his own house. What is the item that he would be judging? Why would he be judging his own house based on what? The verses I just read to you. Do you stand with the altar or are you opposed to the altar? We're going to measure you and we're going to determine whether you're going to be part of the great tribulation as one of the saints or whether he's going to take you out at the very beginning and it will be a judgment of God on the house of faith based on this issue. Let me make, I, I, I do not make, a, I don't make prophetic statements. I repeat what the prophecies say. But I will make a statement to you about this. 
if I find out that you have spoken against the altar and you're opposed to the altar that was established, when it gets shut down and you're in agreement with it being shut down, I will not stand within 50 feet of you for the remainder of your life. I do not believe you will be around, um, you know, for the Great Tribulation. And I believe that judgment, which is the very first judgment of the Great Tribulation, when we see how severe God is going to judge the household of faith, then we know woe to the world and to the unbelievers as to how he's going to judge them. You cannot be in the faith and be in a satisfactory position in your relationship with God being opposed to the creator God when he announces his ownership of this world. That's the reason why we've got the conflict of the devil. The devil is trying to steal the world and the people in it from the Lord. And the Lord is basically saying in the great tribulation with these judgments, no, it belongs to me. And I'm not going to let it go to his enemies or those who oppose the Lord. And that is what is bound up in these words, which it says, take this measuring rod and we're going to make some very clear decisions and judgments uh, with regard to it. That's the understanding of the altar and its importance before we get to the subject of the two witnesses. So, he says, continues further, chapter 11, verse 2, And leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. There's a new measurement. 42 months is not 1260 days. Specifically, if you, we're not talking about a Gentile calendar. We're not talking about the Roman calendar. We're talking about the Hebrew calendar. When it says months, we're talking the Hebrew calendar. On the Hebrew calendar, the average number of days in a month is about 29 days. 29, it's the lunar cycle. So if you total up 42 months, it's less than 1,260 days. 1,260 days is not exactly, in fact, if you really calculate it, it's about 43 Hebrew months. That's a different measurement. Do not combine these measurement units of measure. They are separate units of measure. Months doesn't mean the same thing as days. And that's the reason why the prophecy is specific in those terms. Again, when you get the tribulation timeline, you'll see these different dimensions and you'll see how they interrelate and fit with each other. One of the things that I say, be very careful in trying to convert any one of those unit of measures into something in a common sense because they are intended to be separate, distinct measurements. So, the nations are to trot underfoot the outer courts. What's that saying? It's saying inside the area where the altar is at is the part that God is measuring, and he realizes outside of that area the nations are running amok. He realizes he doesn't have that control over it. That, that's the reason why that's the whole world that's going to be judged in the Great Tribulation. The judgment will be falling on everything that's out there. It's been given to the nations. It's under their control, and that's, you know, that's the target zone for the judgments of God. 
verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Um, the, in in uh, Joel chapter 1, verses 13 and verse 18, it talks about the shutting down of the altar, how when the daily sacrifice, the Tamid offering, and the libation are, they cease from the altar. And it talks about the priests come um, to wail uh, before the Lord that this has been stopped uh, because they know judgment is coming as a result of it. And the two witnesses, I believe, may be part of that group that's talked about in in Joel 1 and then emerge after, you know, that 30 days. They may come the very next day after the altar shut down and the priests are wailing and weeping because they don't have the daily sacrifice. And then out of that group in 30 days, that's when the two witnesses begin to emerge. Uh, it goes on to say of them, um, verse 4, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. The phrase, the Lord of the earth, is referring to the altar. They stand before the altar. The altar is a symbol of the Lord of the earth. You know, um, And when it says two olive trees and two lampstands, uh, you need to go back to Zechariah chapter 4. In Zechariah chapter 4, there's a vision that has been given to uh, Zechariah that talks about olive trees and the pouring of, of oil and the two lampstands and there's a very powerful thing uh, that's given as a vision to Zechariah and that prophecy in Zechariah ties into this. To fully understand the two witnesses you've got to go back to Zechariah 4 and see what Zechariah's uh, vision was about with regard to it. I'm not going to take you back there but for additional reading go back and read that. You'll find that's a very powerful, picturesque thing that brings us to this point. Uh, I've always said this, that the book of Revelation is really kind of like Grand Central Station. It grabs all these individual prophecies and visions by the different prophets of Israel, pulls them all together into one place and tells us how they all come together at the end you know, to bring forth the Messiah and the kingdom of God. And this is one of those that does it. They are performing that role that was in that vision. So it says, verse 5, And if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth, devours their enemies. And if anyone would desire to harm them in this manner, he must be killed. Let's just get something real clear. Right now today, uh, the Temple Mount is a very volatile place. There are Temple Mount police there. Anytime you have some Jews going up to visit, they're prohibited from praying, prohibited from doing anything, because the moment that one of them is seen praying and so forth, there'll be a riot on the Temple Mount from the Palestinians. The Palestinians are up there with their mosque, and, of course, they like to riot up there all the time. Anyways, they're trying to keep the place calm. Now, can you imagine the dynamics of the atmosphere, what we got, of the Jews finally get permission to have an altar. This is going to be a hard pill to swallow for the Palestinians and the Arab and the Muslim world. So there's going to be great conflict, and they'll be trying to safeguard it, okay? 
Uh, now, what it means is before these prophecies can happen, the prerequisite is we've got to have a major change in the political landscape of the Temple Mount. Right now, the Jews don't have control over any of it. Obviously, before we get to the Great Tribulation, and this is one of the things we watch for each year leading into the winter months, do we see the effort on the part of the religious Jews, the Temple Mount faithful and those, to be able to have access to the Temple Mount to set the cornerstone, to build the altar, and to start doing the daily sacrifice. By the way, every one of those items I just mentioned, the Temple Mount faithful goes around publicly talking about. They want to do this. But the thing blocking them is the government of Israel at the moment to maintain the status quo, to keep the peace, quote, in the Middle East with the Palestinians. At the moment, that's almost impossible to do. It would cause all kinds of upheaval. Many people would get hurt, and so the government wants to maintain the peace. But let's say that you have a peace accord that comes along. And for years, we've watched the Middle East peace accord that was started all the way back in 1993. We have watched it very closely to see how it would work. And that's that framework for uh, a two-state solution. And they were going to always negotiate Jerusalem in the final stage. And, and here in recent years... President Trump has finally moved forward on some of Jerusalem, and he put the embassy there, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. So we had a state of Israel. Now we have the city of Jerusalem to be part of Israel. The next step is the Temple Mount. What do we see into the near future uh, concerning it? I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you when it's going to happen. Are there people lined up and ready to do it? Yes. So it's a question of the moment the political landscape changes. Now, let's say the political landscape changes. And the cornerstone's set, the altar's built, we've got some priests up there doing the day of sacrifice. Do you think everybody will just accept that? The answer is no way. I don't care if you do change the political landscape and they get a control of it. The world is going to be upset with this. Um, and then it says the altar's going to get shut down. It'll get stopped. That's the sign of the beginning of the Great Tribulation, as Yeshua said. And then you're going to have two witnesses stand up either side of it, prophesying and testifying for God. If they were upset about the altar, what do you think they're going to take about these two characters? And I can tell you what they're going to want to do. They're going to want to kill them. They're going to want to remove them from the place. Well, that's exactly what the prophecy says. It says there will be people coming against them that want to kill them, but something interesting is going to happen. They're protected by God. Powerfully protected from God. Literally, they have the authority to stop them immediately. And in the manner that they were coming to kill them, they will be killed. Guy tries to shoot them, they get shot. Two witnesses are fine. Somebody comes up with a knife, they get cut with the knife. And it'll take several of those to take place. I mean, there'll be several attempts on their lives until suddenly the world says, you know what, we got to leave those two guys alone. I don't like what they're saying. I don't like what they're doing. But we can't touch them because anybody attempting to harm them, they get harmed. And there will be this very powerful testimony 
from the scripture and from them as they announce judgments upon the world. In fact, they also are given the power. Verse 6, these have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. So you come up and you're opposed to them. Say nations are opposed to them. And leaders speak against them and say they need to be removed, they need to be eliminated, and so forth. So they have the power to stand up and say, okay, that's what you said about us. How about your nation doesn't get any more rain for a while? As long as we're here, you have no rain. Um, How about I just go ahead and show you some interesting, bring me some water. I'm going to turn it into blood. You know, the kind of thing that Moses did before Pharaoh. In other words, I'm demonstrating to you that I've been sent by God and I have the ability, just like Moses put judgments upon Egypt, I can put judgments upon you. Specific type judgments like Moses did. Now, this is in addition to all the other overarching judgments that God is doing through the seals, through the trumpets, and through the plagues. This is in addition, definitely showing just as Moses and Aaron did to, Aaron, to, to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, I've been sent by the Lord, and I'm here to pronounce and tell you that you need to know the Lord. And those that are opposed to the Lord and opposed to us, you will be judged instantly, you know, if you come against. It's a very, very powerful testament. It comes in the midst and as a part of the sixth trumpet the second woe on the earth. Remember I told you before, the woes, it's like a common expression we would use today. If all of a sudden you're faced with something and it's just really gripping you and it's really commanding your attention, you would go, whoa. I mean, it's an exclamation that comes from you because it's very severe. It's very captivating. It commands your attention. Believe you me, These two witnesses will command the attention of the entire world. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised at all that when we come to these days and they begin to testify, there's going to be video on them the entire time. They will be. Now, how do they sustain themselves through that period of time? I don't know. Who exactly are they? Well, we speculate about that. We think maybe it might be Moses or a man in the spirit of Moses because he can do the same judgments as Moses. We think it might be the spirit of Elijah because Elijah is prophesied to come uh, again before the coming of the Lord. Remember I told you about in the Passover cup, we set a cup for Elijah. He's to come for the final redemption. So the prevailing theory is the spirit of Moses and Elijah. We'll have to wait until they come to know for certain who they are. But just given those two names and how God has used them in the past to judge Israel and judge the nations, we know that that's that's the task that the two witnesses are uh, set to do. All right, in verse 7, And when they had finished their testimony, this is the 1260 days, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them, overcome them, and kill them. When it talks about the beast, it's talking about the Antichrist, the Antimessiah. 
and he will have come to power. He'll be operating, and finally, at the end of the Great Tribulation, he's able to overcome them. They die. And verse 8, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Gomorrah. By the way, that's Jerusalem. He, that, that ties very much into Jerusalem. Jeremiah 46 uses that same language to describe uh, airing Jerusalem before the Lord that he calls them Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. Now we know that Yeshua was crucified in Jerusalem. Pretty much nails it down. They will be there at the Temple Mount. They will die, and they'll lay dead for three and a half days. Now, why will they just not touch them? Why will they not come get them? Well, these guys, for 1,260 days, will kill you if you approach them. There is a tremendous amount of fear for them. So it's like, don't touch them. Leave them alone. They'll witness them, they're dead. They'll say, hey, they're definitely dead. But, you know, they're scared to go up and touch them. Um, but, the, but they will rejoice over um, the fact that they've died. Verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and they will send gifts to one another because the two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. That's the way they view the two witnesses. You people came and just tormented all of us. It's judgments from God. They are God's witnesses to declare the judgments so that the world knows what's going on. Someone is able to say to them, this is a judgment from God, repent, turn back to the Lord. And they see it as just torment. And they are going to be as happy as can be when they're dead and not, quote, tormenting them anymore. But it is short-lived because it says, um, verse 11, And after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. They stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those that were beholding them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. They're going to be literally raptured right in front of the, the world. I'm pretty sure it's going to be on video. I'm pretty sure this is going to be witnessed by the world. Everybody will see it. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. Anytime the ground shakes, people naturally think about God. I mean, they just naturally do. Oh, God. <laughs> when the ground's shaking. In fact, even unbelievers call out to God. Whether they cognitively understand, they'll just naturally do it. Oh, God. Um, this is going to be profound. This is right at the end of the days of the Great Tribulation and right at the beginning of what we call the days immediately after the Tribulation. It's in that time period. How long is the time period of the days immediately after the Tribulation? We can tell you what it is. It's 45. Why do we say it's 45 days? Because when Daniel was given the measurement of how long the Great Tribulation was, beginning from the start of the abomination of desolation, 
1290 days. He then said another measurement. He said, but blessed is he who sees the 1335th day. The 1335th day, we believe, is the day the Messiah is on the earth. The kingdom is starting. All of the judgment is over with. The day of the Lord is complete. Blessed is he who sees that day. So the difference between the 1290 and the 1335 is 45 days. So when we hear the prophecy of the days immediately after the tribulation, we're talking about that period of time, that 45-day period. The first event of that 45-day period is the death of the two witnesses. They lay dead for three and a half days, and suddenly they're raised. That's the first event after the tribulation, the great tribulation. So, and then it talks about there's going to be the death of 7,000 people, a great earthquake. Anytime you have a major city and there's a major earthquake and hundreds or thousands of people um, are killed, um, it, it captivates the whole world's attention. And I'm telling you, there's a day coming when there will be a great earthquake in Jerusalem, 7,000 people will die in that earthquake and it will command the world's attention it comes right on the heels of right at the beginning of the days immediately after the tribulation it's almost like sending the signal that the lord is basically saying i'm starting with jerusalem to judge the world we'll start with jerusalem in fact uh, in the prophecies of the day of the lord uh, and the great prophet who speaks of the day of the Lord predominantly is the prophet Zephaniah. Zephaniah is the prophet who says, and he specifically speaks of the issue of the start of the great tribulation, or excuse me, the start of the day of the Lord. And he speaks of a particular place. When I take people on tours to Israel, I take them to this place. And it is says that the very first cry of judgment that comes on Jerusalem uh, associated with the day of the Lord comes from a particular place in Jerusalem. The place is called the mortar. And if you were to take the walk from the city of the gate of the Damascus gate and you were to walk down that main street, there's going to come to an intersection point where the main road that comes from the Lion's Gate comes in uh, from the east. You can see the location when you're standing near the Lion's Gate. You can see it. And that area, that intersection of the road from the Lion's Gate and the Damascus Gate is called the Mortar. That Mortar means merchants. And in the ancient city of Jerusalem and to this present day, that's where the merchants have always been set up in the city of Jerusalem. The prophecy of Zephaniah says the first cry of judgment upon Jerusalem at the day of the Lord is heard from that place. I mean, that's pretty specific on the prophecy. Would you not agree? I think there's a very good possibility that the prophecy of the earthquake in Jerusalem, the the death of the 7,000, that might be the center point right there of where it starts. That that particular point will be severely impacted by this earthquake. That will be the first cry that we're now in the days after the tribulation. We're now in the days of the day of the Lord. 
and the ultimate final judgment upon the world that's going to take place. All right, verse 14, uh, it says the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So why would the third woe be coming quickly? Well, we're in the days immediately after the tribulation. The third woe, the seventh trumpet, happens in the days immediately after the great tribulation. By the way, as we go through and read here about this, the seventh trumpet, sometimes you need to go back and read about the sixth seal, and you'll read about the seventh plague. They're all describing the same thing. They're describing the day of the Lord. He goes on to say, um, verse 15, And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose a loud voice in heaven, saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, who wast, uh, who art, art, and who was, uh, because thou hast taken thy great power and has begun to reign. The Messiah, if we stop and think about him, right now, where is he? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. That's where he's at. And it says the earth is being made his footstool. He's sitting. But there comes a moment when he's got to rise from that seat so that he can return to the earth and establish the kingdom. When does he rise from his seat, seated at the right hand of the Almighty, and begin to reign? It's right here, at the beginning of the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet sounds, and the Messiah stands up in heaven. He controls heaven at this point, and now he's en route to take control of the earth and take it away from the enemy. His reign is about to begin. Here's what it says on the world, verse 18. And the nations were enraged, and thy wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to give the reward to thy bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear thy name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. Day of the Lord. When's it happen? In the days immediately after the Great Tribulation. Now, we have another pattern at this point that is appropriate for us to talk about. The fall feasts. The fall feasts of trumpets, of Day of Atonement, and of tabernacles is going to be falling in those days. So what does trumpets teach us? That there will be a great trumpet sounded. The dead in the Messiah are going to be raised. And then that we who belong to the Lord will be raised with them. Why are we being raised up to the level of the clouds? Because the Lord's getting ready to come on the day of the Lord, which is the day of atonement. And he's going to judge the whole place. We have to be, we can't, we're not to receive the wrath of God, so we're going to be lifted up. On that one day, you know, he destroys his enemies. And koshers the world. You know, he does it with fire. And then five days after that, we are in the kingdom. The Messiah is returning, and we're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. We're celebrating the Feast of Ingathering. 
We've all gathered to Jerusalem to receive the Lord. The kingdom is beginning. I believe that is the 1335th day. The beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles in that day. So that pattern of the fall feast fits into the prophecies of explaining what's taking place in the days immediately after the tribulation. Those 45 days, what is taking place. By the way, uh, this is also something interesting to note. Let's say that that final day is the start of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's 15 Tishri. So let's count back 45 days. What date on the calendar would be the tribulation coming to an end and the beginning of the days immediately after the tribulation? What date would that be and is there any significance to it? Yes, there is. You count back through the first 15 days of Tishri, then you count the whole month of Elul. And on the first day of Elul, you know what we call that day in the calendar? Those are the 40 days of repentance before we get to the day of the Lord. The whole pattern is set up that as soon as the Great Tribulation concludes, the world's going to give, God's going to give the world 40 days to repent. If you don't repent within that time frame, then you're going to be subject to the day of the Lord and the judgments. And if you'll note, he talks about certain people are going to be receiving the Lord very well. In fact, he's bringing his reward for his bond servants and the prophets and the saints and all who hold to his name. And there may be people in those 40 days that will finally cry out and beg for salvation from the Lord. Let me also say this. A lot of people talk about uh, they don't like to hear the prophecies of the great tribulation. They don't want to hear the prophecies of the day of the Lord because... This is their argument. We should be focusing on sharing the gospel message of salvation and to bring people into the faith. I believe that salvation and the salvation message is a very critical message, very important, is a high priority in the faith. But I'm here to tell you, the Lord's going to save more people during the Great Tribulation than the church has in the previous 2,000 years. There will be an unbelievable great salvation taking place. In that last 40 days, how many people do you think, having gone through all of the great tribulation and all these judgments, and everybody's clearly saying this is the work of the Lord, how many people do you think might at that moment say, God, I'm not sure what's going on here, but I'm looking and trusting you with my life, and please save me. And they call upon his name. And then by the grace and mercy of God, they are delivered from the very wrath of God. The wrath of God is not purposed for his saints. It is purposed for those who are unbelievers. So I think that in those 40 days, it could be a very interesting time of, um, of many saints you know, coming into the faith. It's also the final days of the false prophet. It's the final days of the anti-Messiah. It's the nations are going to have one last battle with God. They're going to be rejecting. Like it says, they'll be enraged and they'll be very opposed to God. They actually, and I, I know this is going to sound stupid when I say it to you, but it's true. People on the earth 
when they know the Messiah is getting ready to return from heaven and come back to the earth, there's going to be people on the earth that actually think they can arm themselves, band themselves as an army, and that somehow they can stop that from happening. People will be that dumb. They will be that deceived. Um, I'd like to find the bookie on this one, on this contest, because I'd really like to put a bet on the Lord on this one. I think it's a sure thing, you know, and I'd wager everything I got on it that he's going to win this one. Uh, But that's what the prophecy tells us, that that's the dynamic that's taking place. So now we have, um, uh, we're, we're talking about the day of the Lord, the seventh trump. Look at verse 19 of chapter 11. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Day of the Lord. One of the things about the day of the Lord is, did you hear that? The temple is opened in heaven. Let me explain why would that be done? Because God on his throne is sitting on the mercy seat. If the temple is open and you see it there, he's not on his mercy seat. If he's not on his mercy seat, he's carrying out justice. He balances justice and mercy. Um, if you remember, I told you back at the seventh seal, the seventh seal would occur at the same time. What was the seventh seal? There's silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. Now, God is up in the temple in heaven, and there's constant rejoicing, and there's seraphim and cherubim present, and the elders are present, and everybody's praising the Lord, and it's just a constant thing of being in the throne of God. Why would there ever be silence in heaven for the space of half an hour? Because God is not on that throne. He has left that throne, and he's come down here to judge this place. Now, how long does it take him on the day of the Lord to render this judgment before he's back on his mercy seat again? Are you ready? About a half an hour. Earth time, about a half an hour. That's how long it'll take for God to judge the whole world by fire. A half an hour. Not even a full hour. Just a half an hour. That's the reason why I'm saying I want to put a bet on him. Because if he can do this in a half an hour, I think it will be conclusive, it will be decisive, it will be incredible to behold. You and I, as end-time saints, are going to be witnesses of this. We're going to witness this. And when we get into the kingdom, that's the reason why there's a lot of other people in the kingdom who will be coming up and saying, tell us what was it like that day. What did you see? What did you observe when you saw Almighty God? Reveal himself as God of the whole world and judge the world. What was it like? Nobody's ever seen that. We've seen the work of his creation. We've seen his grace and his mercy. We've seen his work of redemption. But we've not seen this part of God before. 
and it says he will be coming back and it will be happening in those days. All right, we are now at chapter 12, and again, we're going to have a slightly different topic that's going to take place. We need to go back and, and look at this whole thing from another slant. So this is another movement that's going to try to describe all of these events and who the players are. Chapter 12 begins with, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head was a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. And his tail swept away at the third of the stars of heaven, and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she was nourished in a place prepared by God so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Before I go any further, let's recap what we're hearing. This piece of scripture is an actual astrological sign in the heavens that appears every winter. It is it has to do with the constellation uh, Virgo, the Virgin. It has to do with certain bright stars that occur there, which are like Regulus and so forth, that are represented as the king, which are represented as a sun. And in the lower part of the horizon, and only in winter can you see this constellation, is Hydra, the seven-headed dragon. And every winter in the heavens, we have this astrological story that is repeated right here in chapter 12. It's an overarching story of the conflict between God and the devil. And the reason why that the Messiah came was to do the work of redemption. And what did the dragon try to do? Tried to kill him at the birth. You remember that when Yeshua was born in Bethlehem, that the king Herod wanted the death of all children two years and younger, and that they had to flee to Egypt, and then they came back to live in Nazareth. That picture of that great story is an astrological sign in the heavens. And... Each year, we get to see this played out in the winter. Why would the winter time frame be so associated with the great tribulation in this prophecy? Because we see this astrological sign at the start of the great tribulation. This is the overarching story. But then we have this last verse, verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she might be nourished for 1,260 days. In the same days that the two witnesses are standing up, Yeshua said, when you see the abomination set up, when you see that image is set up, that's when the two witnesses are going to begin to start. 
said, if you're in Judea, you must flee to the wilderness. It's a very specific prophecy for believers that are in the land of Israel, in the Judea area. We're not talking worldwide. We're talking a very specific prophecy about Judea and the people and the believers in Judea. And they are told to flee immediately on that day. And that they will be taken care of. They will be cared for 1260 days, as the prophecy says here. What do I think is really going to happen? I know this is going to sound crazy to you guys, but i got a lot of other prophecies that back this up. But let me summarize it for you. Those believers that uh, of Yeshua, when the, the second phase of the abomination of desolation is set up, in other words, we have the shutdown of the altar, that starts it, and then about 30 days later, they're going to set the image of the anti-Messiah up, and they'll do a miracle, and the false prophet is going to tell everybody to worship the beast. And they're going to do it on the Temple Mount, on the wing of abomination. They'll do it to the north or to the south of the altar. Anybody who witnesses that, that's your signal. If you're in Judea, you must flee right now. You haven't got time to go back to your house and pack up. You've got to head to the wilderness. Where are they going to go? They're going to go directly west. They're going to go into the Judean wilderness. They're going to take the exact same path that the scapegoat goes. The scapegoat's done on the day of the Lord, and it's really telling a picture of how to escape the day of the Lord. And they're going to go exactly where the scapegoat goes. And I'll, I'll show you the verses here very shortly. Something incredible is going to happen. It's going to be the miracle of the Red Sea in reverse. When the children of Israel escaped out of Egypt, God opened the sea and they went across on dry land. This time they're going to escape, but a great flood will come after them. By the way, when do the torrential rains come in Israel? Late winter, first part of spring. That's when the rains come. And in fact, Israel has a real problem with this. Every time the rains come, anybody that's out there in the Judean wilderness, there's flash floods out there, and many people have been killed. In fact, they've had flash floods out there that washed buses off the highways. It's that horrific. And that's a well-known, very scary piece of terrain when the rains come. Well, the prophecy says, this is the time frame, the prophecy says the devil will cause rain to come, a great flood to destroy them. However, this time the Lord opens the earth and it swallows the flood. And they're saved. They are delivered at that point and they continue to journey into the wilderness. Where do I think they're going to go? Well, some people think they're going to go to Petra, a very popular place for tourists. It's in southern Jordan, uh, down next to Aqaba in that area, and they think they're going to go there. There's a good possibility that they might travel through there, but I think ultimately where they're going to go is to the base of Mount Sinai in Arabia. Because we've got some issues that happened there a long time ago that need to get resolved. When our ancestors were at the base of Mount Sinai, the Lord was preparing to take them to the land, and they balked. And we sent the spies in, and we lost heart, lost hope, 
and we had to spend 40 years in the wilderness, and that generation died, and then we went from there. The Lord wants to take Israel from Mount Sinai right to the promised land. He's going to accomplish it with the last generation. They're going to flee there. He will take care of them, and then he'll bring them back to it. I know you're going, well, where in the world did you get that idea, Monty? This is a combination of many prophecies from many other different places. And the the understanding of these verses is seeing this great scenario at, at, the, at the greatest level possible. So chapter 12, the beginning, is giving us an overview again of the whole dynamic that brought us to the Great Tribulation. And now it focuses in on specifically a group of people in Judea which are going to flee into the wilderness and they'll be delivered at the same time the two witnesses are testifying and prophesying. Again, we're starting at the start of the Great Tribulation again. We're talking about the abomination of desolation, the setting up of the image. This is now reviewing again another layer of what's going on in the Great Tribulation. The seals told us about the whole story of the Great Tribulation. The trumpets tell us the whole story of the Great Tribulation. They're all integrated together. And now these stories are telling us things that are happening in the whole Great Tribulation. It's layer upon layer upon layer to understand what is happening in the Great Tribulation. That's what the Messiah wants us to do. It's like a 3D prophetic symphony being presented to us. By the way, it gets even better as we go further. All right, our time has come to a conclusion, um, and I trust that you are being enlightened and edified by what we have. When we return, uh, we are going to talk about the war in heaven at uh, verse 7, chapter 12, and proceed on from there. And I'm certain in the next program, we're going to get into the subject of who the anti-Messiah is, who the false prophet is, because that comes up in the very next chapter. Shalom, everyone.